Hello and welcome to season six of Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to let you know how grateful we are to you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy during season six. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media with your friends and family. And of course, give us a like and leave a review. We hope you guys enjoy the season. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Steve Sukalis. Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And I am honored today to have on Captain's Corner with me, Dr. Steve Sukalis, who's coming to us from Santa Barbara, California. Welcome, Steve. Well, pleasure to be on, Andy. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Sukalis has uh, served in a variety of academic roles at many seminaries. Some of you will know um, maybe of his work at Wesley Biblical Seminary, Emmaus Theological Seminary. Um, he also ch- taught at um, courses at Asbury Theological Seminary. And Dr. Sukalis is um, an apologist and a defender of the faith. He's written on cults. He's written on basic Christian beliefs. He's um, and just a wonderful, articulate spokesperson for the gospel. And one time I actually brought him in to have a debate on the University of Texas at Arlington when my wife and I were appointed there. So we're really glad to have you here. Steve, would you just tell us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of your own testimony and what God's doing in your life? Sure. Uh, I used to be a nightclub entertainer. Right. And uh, full-time in the Boston area. Okay. We did covered tunes way back in the seventies and the eighties. So we did, uh, bebop from the 50s we did some songs from the 60s and uh, i was even an elvis impersonator were you really so <laughs> I, I told people like i couldn't have pulled it off unless i looked like them <laughs> <laughs> and i uh, wasn't a christian right if you've seen the movie my big fat greek wedding right that is my upbringing wow. greek awesome that to the t and i uh, wasn't a christian and uh met my first wife to be in the nightclub Okay. And uh, she she contacted um, the terminal disease, leukemia, okay. afterward, and we still got married, and we were searching to see what happens after we die. And oh. uh, someone led us to Christ, and I was still in, while uh, attending a Christian church on Sunday, during the week, I was involved with a couple of heretical movements, okay. reading their magazine, watching them on TV, <clears throat> and then when my first wife died... I realized that these things uh, were not Christian Hmm. and how important it is for Christians to understand beliefs of the others uh, in in order to evangelize them. Then I entered seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and received a a Master of Divinity degree. And uh, from there, uh, afterward, married my Sandy, uh, Sandy Richter, whom I think you'll have on Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. She's going to be on uh, Captain's Corner, too. Yeah. Old Testament scholar. Many mm-hmm. people in the Salvation Army probably recognize her name. She's uh, written several books that have um, uh, been used in the Salvation Army and in you know the Wesleyan circles, but all over the evangelical community, too. So, But you guys are like this dynamic, intellectual, Christian powerhouse between the—I can't imagine the conversations that you guys have together. I would love— Love to be a fly on some of those walls. <laughs> the good thing, it's a good thing we're in different fields. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure. <laughs> so afterward, ju- just long story short, after I married Sandy, yeah. uh, received a, a further master's degree at Harvard in world religions, went on to do a PhD uh, at the University of Birmingham in, in Hinduism. Okay. okay. <laughs> and so here I am. 
Gotcha. And and um, did did you and Sandy meet at Gordon Conwell or at Harvard? Because she also did her some advanced work at Harvard as well. Is that? We met briefly at Gordon Conwell. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Nice to meet you. And that was about it. And then only afterward, after graduation for both of us at Gordon Conwell, we got we got to know each other better. Gotcha. Okay. I want to get into the title of this. Uh, you had an article published in the Evangelical Society, Society's um, Theological Society's journal called Jets. Um, and it. I was really glad to see it there. And I've heard you address this subject before. And reading just a little bit of your article kind of was a confirmation of some of the thoughts I, I things I thought that I couldn't quite express. But the, the, uh, the title of the article, the first part of it is, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? And I have always even struggled. I feel like it's like asking a question doesn't quite even start at the right place. And I think that that's where you're going in in this article i would love to hear like um what what is i know we won't have time for the whole thing but i'd love to hear your thoughts and your answer to that question and we'll just try and dialogue here as best we can about it okay well i endeavored to come to the question in a more biblical fashion okay and uh, there are several key theological notions that first had to be addressed in the article and um, these are errors, mistakes in Christian thinking. Okay. Um, the, the question as it is phrased is erroneous from the start. Okay. Um, <clears throat> if the audience will bear with me with some technical stuff, the first, the first error or what we just assume without even thinking when we ask the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God, is that Although we will confess that the Lord is involved with his creation, uh, practically we're thinking what I call great gulfism, great mm. gulfism, where there is a great gulf in between God. And when I do that for God, that's not a positive thing. Right. Air quotes, great yeah. gulf between God and us, and it's unbridgeable. Mm -hmm. And we worship like that, too. Interesting. We worship as if we are doing something for uh, God, and uh, he is looking down upon us. Hmm. That's great gulfism. And many Christian thinkers have taken, taken this assumption, right. presupposition. And some, I would question their Christianity, like Miroslav Volf, Interesting. who wrote a book years ago, Allah, operates on that kind of paradigm. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just say, in the Old Testament, as remedy here, the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord, is involved intimately with Amen. his covenant people. Yes. And he comes to be the, among them. And that is made profoundly significant in the incarnation of God Amen. the Son, Jesus, who comes to be among us. There is no great gulf. Mm. He is with us. Amen. So, okay. And the, yeah. The, the, the other error that I argue, and there's two more, is lack of what we call theological predicates. Okay. Now, that's a big word, so let me, let me define it. It's simply putting the right definitional word before or after G-O-D. Okay. So what are some predicate, what is the predicate we put before G-O-D? And when I say G-O-D, 
that's not a positive thing either. Okay. Uh, simply put, triune. Amen. That's a predicate. Once you put triune in front of G-O-D, it cuts right to the issue. Now ask the question, do Christians and Muslims worship the triune God? Mm. Nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Muslims, of course, deny the right. Trinity. So that cuts right to the chase. After God, three predicates, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Mm. And on, my, on, a, on a soapbox, just for a moment, Go when ahead. we preach, when we teach, when we pray, when we articulate theology, we do so generally very sloppily. We have to pray triunely. We have to articulate theology triunely with these proper predicates. Mm. The third, the third error is what is profoundly irreversible in Christian thought. And it was the phrase homoousios. Right. Homoousios simply means of the same being, right. of the same essence. And <clears throat> this is this word was used in the Council of Nicaea to express the relation between the father and the son. And the phrase was used that the son is of the same essence Amen. as the father. Now, Nicaea just didn't come up with that in a vacuum. Right. It comes in part from John 1.1c, where we read the word, that's the pre-incarnate Christ, the word was God Amen. by nature. And then John proceeds in his gospel to flesh this father-son relationship where they share the same essence or nature throughout the gospel. We do not operate with that theologically. Now, once you do that, you cannot separate the father from the son. Amen. And what theologians do in answering this question is that there is a separation of categories between the father and the son. When you do that, you look at the son and you separate him from the Father and the Spirit, the triune God, you separate him from the Father and the Spirit, you get into all kinds of partitional theology, which can lead us into problems. Wow. So, predicates and homoousios cut right to the issue. You cannot have the Father without the Son. So, I'll end with this one. The first question I asked, rightly, predicatively rightly is do christians and muslims worship the triune god Hmm. that cuts right to the problem the second one and might might even be a better question do muslims worship god the father they cannot if they deny who jesus is right because of the father and the son sharing the same same substance essence yeah so in the Salvation Army, our article of faith, our third article of faith says this, we believe, and just to kind of give folks, a, uh, those particularly come from the Salvation Army tradition, this idea of how it's rooted in our very 11 doctrines. Um, so we say we believe there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, undivided in essence and co-equal in power and glory. 
So like if we affirm that article of faith, this is like the, the basis that homoousios that Dr. Sukalis is talking about. So th- this is interesting. Like as we think of that, I, I was intrigued by the way that you talk about predicates and this this real basic grammatical term to help us move through this idea of like of uh, how we can't answer this question in an affirmative way. And I want to get kind of to the practical side too in a minute, which I know you're really good at. But, but what would you say with, with the kind of sloppy theological language that we can sometimes use even from the pulpit? And I'll, I, I probably, I've probably, I'm probably guilty of that myself. Um, like what would be a good way to say it? Sometimes I end a prayer this way. So critique me if this isn't good. This isn't a good way. Sometimes I'll say, to the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Like, is that a way to bring it in? Like, or do we, is it proper for us to pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Help Absolutely me Absolutely right on, Andy. And that, yes, at the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus gives us the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um. Now, I'm not saying you do this, but when I listen to the majority, the overwhelming majority of sermons given and to Christians talking, we at best give lip service to the triune God. It may be tagged on at the end of the sermon. Hmm. Um, But what I'm after and what I hope to train Christians, what I do train, train Christians to do is to be Trinitarian throughout the sermon. Hmm be Trinitarian throughout the prayer and throughout articulation. Take the phrase, God and Jesus. Now, that's biblical. Okay. But, um, but what about the people that are sitting out there who aren't trained deeply and who might not even be Christians? Right. When I use the phrase God and Jesus, what might they be thinking? God is God. Right. And Jesus is not. How about God and the Holy Spirit or God and the Spirit? Well, God is God and the Holy Spirit is just some impersonal force or I don't know what that preacher means by that term. Sure. Now, although it's biblical, uh, for example, throughout the letters of Paul, as the letters proceed, you get God, give glory to God. We are blessed by God. I pray to God. But look at the beginning of the letters you have God. It's interesting. I know it's interesting. So when you're reading, yeah, when you're reading the epistle or the letter and you see God, most of the time, not always because Jesus is God, the son, um, it refers to the father because the predicates have already been given at the beginning of the letter. Interesting. Yeah. So I just finished a six week series on Jude, 25 verses in Jude. And I'll tell you, uh, I was blown away by this little book and the heresies that were going on in the church to which Jude was speaking were are, are so relevant to our time. I would I and but he begins and so I just finished this past week. He begins by saying to those who are called and loved um, and uh, and kept in Jesus and loved by the Father. But then he ends, he kind of brings that keep language in again, but he, he says um, to continue to build your faith up, pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. He doesn't say God the Father there, but then and then he says um, a word 
to our Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is his half brother. Interesting idea, but it brings this together at the end, but he just says God. And oftentimes when the kind of, there's a Trinitarian floor, formula I've seen in the New Testament, it doesn't always identify the father, but I didn't think about how it, uh, many of the letters start off that way. That's exactly what happens in Jude. Yes, yes. And we, it is good to be Trinitarian. The only God that exists is the triune God. Amen. Why is it missing? Why is that doctrine and articulation missing in the Christian life? If that, if he is the only God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it should be commonplace. It should flow from our lips. One, one other thing I want to bring up, yeah, yeah. Andy, if I may. You know what a preposition is, a preposition, through, under, in, with, over, right. by, etc. <clears throat> We often use the phrase in Christ right. or uh, through Christ. Right, right. But there's one preposition that has been virtually lost in Christian thought and understanding and articulation, and that's the preposition with. Interesting. By virtue of his great high priesthood Amen. and sole meteor- mediatorship between us and the Father, we worship with amen jesus yeah what does that do there is no gulf he is worshiping with us we are worshiping with him when we take communion we do it with him when we pray we pray with him and he presents our prayers to the father amen he sanctifies them he sets them apart part and perfects them in himself as he offers to the father we are baptized with the presence of Christ. He is with us. Amen. When we preach, we preach with him. He preaches with us. Mm. And that great gulfism disappears. Remember the preposition, everybody, with. I love Christ. it. Hey, I think if Ephesians, we are raised together with Christ. Something that's been really important to my own preaching and teaching is acknowledging that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now. That we don't just say Jesus died for my sins or even Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead, but that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Therefore, he's available to us now as our as our prayer partner. And I, I think that this idea of like missing the uh, the coronation of Jesus of such or the um, the exaltation of Jesus really I've picked this up from Matthew Bates and I'm not sure what you'd think of of his book but he has this interesting idea about allegiance that pistis in the New Testament often the word pistis is often translated faith in the New Testament and then I'm I'm saying that to somebody who's Greek who knows this very well I'm not I'm, I'm saying this for our audience but um, he he suggests that. We should translate that term many times as allegiance. And so the idea is like the, the word would have been used in um, Roman times. So you, you have a pistis toward the emperor and you direct a cognitive belief, like a, a assumption, but also this walking out of your faith. But the reason I think it's interesting and connected to this idea of being with Christ is that we direct our faith to somebody who is there and available and at the right hand of the Father. Um, so I, I don't really have a reason for saying that, except for I love that you're emphasizing this concept of with. 
with Jesus. Yeah, there, there is that allegiance. There is trust. Mm-hmm. It, all that is involved in pistis or, or, or faith. But <clears throat> there is something else. Okay. And again, this is largely missing in Christian thought. There is the notion where in the Council of Chalcedon yes. in 451 AD, now Nicaea was 325 AD, where we have the homoousion to patri, which is Jesus is of the same essence or being with the Father, homoousios between the Father and the Son. But in Chalcedon, we have homoousios. Jesus is homoousios with us according to the manhood. Mm. According to his humanity, he is homoousios with us. He, in his, in his humanity, became like we are, yet without sin. And when we realize that we have faith with Christ in the Father, in communion of the Spirit, when we have faith with him, we participate in his perfect humanity. Mm. There is with, we are raised with Christ, but how does that happen? We are in him yes. by virtue of his humanity. He is homoousios with us, and in him we are raised. In him we are baptized. So it's in and with and even through. That's an amazing concept. Homoousios with us according to the manhood. Wow. And we are not just in Christ as some ambiguous Think, thinking phrase, we actually are one with him according to his humanity. And just as the Father and the Son are one right. in being, so are we one in being by virtue of his humanity with him. Wow. This is so helpful. So very, very profound. And much of what I gather is from my favorite modern theologian. Thomas F. Torrance, right, right, and my favorite ancient theologian, Athanasius. There you go. From whom we get the through and the in and the with. But again, the with has been largely lost in Christian thinking. This is so helpful. Worship. Um, now, when when the people listening are thinking of worship. They might be saying, this is all fine and good, all this kind of language and high thinking, but it involves worship, as we've been talking about. We worship with Christ and in him by virtue of his humanity. In Christ, because he is fully God and fully man, with Christ and in Christ, because of Christ, what is happening? He is the movement of God the Father and the Spirit to us. Mm-hmm. He's the movement to us from the triune God. And by virtue of his humanity, he is the movement of us to the mm-hmm. triune God. And when I say to and I do that, I also mean to the Amen. triune God, the vertical. So there, there again, good stuff from Athanasius. I, in fact, uh, uh, comes from his... Uh, uh, on the incarnation, right? It's a, it's a short little book, um, 
that anybody yeah. can pick up. And I think, I mean, it, these terms are there, but I think it's a, a beautiful, readable book from an early church father. I'd highly recommend it, folks. Oh, yeah. And I'm impressed. And and a lot of these, all these books can be, be found online and people oh, can sure. read them from Athanasius and even shorter treaties. It's a couple of pages uh, online. Uh, it's called On Luke 1022. Is that from Athanasius? Uh, yeah. Okay. Very brief. On Luke. On Luke 1022. Awesome. Okay. 1022b. <clears throat> no one knows who the son is except the father. And no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son wills to reveal the father. Just short. There is a closed circle of knowing between the father and the son. No one knows who the son is except the father. No one knows who the father is except the son. There's a, to use Torrance's language, a closed circle of knowing mm. between the father and the son. And those to whom Christ chooses to reveal the father, we enter into the closed circle of knowing between the father and the son. Not infinitely, right? <laughs> because we are, we are limited, yeah. but we enter into that knowing between the father and the son. And that develops in us what Torrance calls a theological instinct. Mm. And when we worship with this theological instinct, prayers will flow by God's grace, the Holy Spirit's grace in us. When we hear phrases used in Christian talking or even outside Christian theological talking, our minds are so in tuned to the relationship between the Father and the Son that we know this isn't right, or we know, and that's good stuff. Mm, mm -hmm. We have the mind of Christ, right. as Paul said. This mind can be in you. It's amazing. I think of Dennis Kinlaw's great little book on that topic, and this is a, it gets connected to our Wesleyan holiness tradition of like believing that the Holy Spirit can really live in us and we can be with Christ. This is why we can say we don't have to sin. Like We don't have to live in a state where we're always sinning. Let me jump back to something. Uh, I, I'm just curious if this, this idea of, of the... I'm sorry, I can't. My I'm showing the limitations of my Greek, but Chalcedon. I always I, I think you have a different accent at Cal, uh, with Chalcedon. And tell me how to say it right, Steve. Oh, Chalcedon, Chalcedon, Chalcedon. Okay, I use Chalcedon. Chalcedon. Okay, so um, with this idea of of according to his humanity is this the, where we get the tradition of calling. Jesus or Christ, our brother, Christ, uh, Christ, our brother. We, there's hymns that talk about Christ being our brother. Um, so, so sometimes we, we, we misdirect, we even think of him in a, di a different way in his humanity. Is that where that would come from, you think? Yes, uh, in part, uh, because there's so much more to it. And I, I hope that we can start to realize that when we use, for example, when we use the phrase vicarious, right. I'm going... He is our brother, absolutely. Right. But he is our brother according to the humanity uh, because he is homoousios with us according to the manhood. But when we use the phrase vicarious, uh, this is going to be connected here. Right, I got we often think of the cross. Vicarious means substitutionary. Right, right, right. right. Vicarious uh, substitution on the cross. He took our place. Right. But 
the vicariousness of Christ is not only the cross. It culminates in the cross and in the, uh, in the resurrection and the ascension. But his, his, his humanity is vicarious. Interesting. From conception to ascension. His whole life is a substitution. Right. For, Amen. From his, from his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the agency of God, the Holy Spirit. From his conception, when he took on our humanity, he begins to sanctify it. Amen. To perfect it for us. Even now to this From, point at the right hand of the, like the, the whole picture is Christ a vicarious living on our behalf. I'm, I'm probably using the wrong word, but from, I love that you're saying, I normally think of incarnation or, but I guess like we think of pre-existence even. Jesus's pre-existence, the words pre-existence to the conception all the way to the exaltation um, and even in his coming again. Like that's the total picture. I'm sorry I interrupted you. You're getting me excited though, thinking about like <laughs> this is broader than, than I, I often preach. So I'm glad to get this grammar to help me. May we all be excited like that because we're talking about the Lord of glory. Amen. Uh, so yes, when we speak of vicarious, we need to add his humanity. His humanity is vicarious for us from conception, not the birth, right. from conception to the exaltation. Think of Christ's whole existence right. as the vicariousness, the substitution for us to perfect us in him. Amen. This episode of Captain's Corner is sponsored by Arthur Alley Associated, your partner for fundraising and mission development. Led by longtime Salvation Army fundraisers Derek Alley and Steve Wakes Norris, Arthur Alley can help your nonprofit organization or church with services like mission planning, annual and capital campaign fundraising, and coaching. Arthur Alley has the experience and insight to help your organization thrive. They've worked with organizations across the country and specialize in serving the Salvation Army. And today, for Captain's Corner listeners, Arthur Alley is offering a free 20-minute consultation call. Brainstorm strategy, script an upcoming donor visit, talk through an advisory board issue, or ask questions you've been afraid to ask in public. It's entirely up to you. Visit ArthurAlley.com slash captain. That's Alley with two L's, ArthurAlley.com slash captain to set up your complimentary consultation call today. Okay, I want to go jump back to the your your article a little bit because uh, you you highlighted Mirsal Wolf. Um, you know, he's been written about positively in evangelical circles and in and I know Christianity Today had uh, kind of a you know, a fairly positive article about his book Allah and um the, the the argument even I had at evangelical seminary and and evangelical seminary was that um, well you know yes and no uh, we worship the same God now, okay yeah he's not the same in, in as Trinity but when you go into a Muslim country or you're working with Muslims maybe you should just go ahead and say yes as a means of furthering the conversation and I know you're somebody who's engaged probably right and you might have a few people you're witnessing to right now. Uh, in the Islamic tradition. I'd be curious of your advice to us in this regard. Well, I, let me start with a, with a quotation at the end of my article. Okay. Uh, where I write, 
Homoousios, pertaining to the distinct persons of the Trinity, describes what the triune God is, intrinsically in undivided relation. Amen. Therefore, those who deny a relationship with God the Son by rejecting who he is do not have a relationship with the Father and do not worship the Father in communion with the Spirit. Quranic Muslims do not worship the triune God because they reject the triune God. They do not worship the Father or believe in the Father because they reject his Son. One's view of who Jesus is has eternal consequences. For too long, omission of proper theological predicates Mm. and no interaction with the doctrine of homoousios have characterized the discussion over whether or not Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Ending this way of theologizing over the question is desperately needed for clarity and truth. Mm. Now, when we're talking with Muslims, we owe it to them to properly articulate who God is. That is for clarity and for truth in evangelism and hopefully discipleship after they become Christians. Right. Clarity and truth. So it, it, we're not and, doing them any service. We're not, and, we're, and the same thing is true if we really affirm the existence of heaven and hell. And we can describe that. We could, we could spend a whole episode talking about that. If we believe that, we, we, by, not, by not proclaiming that when we talk to people, um, particularly those who are not Christians, we are not doing them a service. And the same thing is true yes, here. Indeed. Yes, indeed. And um, <clears throat> Torrance, Thomas Torrance uses the phrase, which he gets from the early church, godliness with accuracy, worship with precision. Mm. I use the acronym GOP. Uh, for example, when you when you gawk at something, G-A-W-K, well, I replace the K with a P, gop. Godliness with accuracy, worship with precision. Preachers? Okay. Worship band? Uh, praying? Godliness with accuracy, worship with precision. Evangelism with accuracy is worship with precision Amen. or evangelism with accuracy evangelism with precision we owe it to them wow i love we it. owe it to the father because of the son because we witness with him about him in communion with god the holy spirit well, I mean, what if people say to you well uh, steve this is this is a non-starter we're not going to get anywhere when we have conversations like you're not gonna uh, you have to get in somehow what do you say to that well, evangelistically, missiologically, yes, start somewhere with with the person as we witness with Christ and in God the Holy Spirit. We've got to start somewhere. I don't always start off with the triune God, but eventually it needs to be there in the conversation and in the conversion. So it has to be, it's like you, you may not start there. But get there as soon as possible. <laughs> get to the truth. I remember you presented, yeah. there was a two, I forget, I don't know if it's a Ryan lectures or something like that, while I was at Asbury uh, Theological Seminary. And as I said earlier, as Noel was probably in the womb of your wife, uh, there was uh, this, the, you, there was two professors who made presentations. You're smiling, so that's good. Uh, there was two professors who made presentations on this same question. 
And you started off, I, it was so clear to me, and we didn't know each other then. I didn't, I, unfortunately, I am much lesser of a person because I'd never had a class with you or Sandy. I'm sorry to say that. Uh, you left You left for Wesley uh, soon after I was there. So there you go. Their, 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 their gain is my loss. So, um, but you started off your presentation answering this question. You took 10 minutes, I think, to lay out the epistemological foundation. When I say epistemological, I mean like the, the way that we go about knowledge and the way we can understand truth. I feel like that was an interesting piece for me. So before you even answer the question, you you laid the foundation, the fact of how we even know anything in general. And I think you kind of rooted that in Alvin Plantinga's ideas of basic beliefs in God. But like, I think this is connected to what you're saying here with the missiological perspective is, we still have to rest on something. We still have to rest on some truth as we make the truth as we make our steps forward. I'd love for you to just even give a little of uh, that, that talk through how we can know things, like the epistemological foundation that you have for entering these discussions. Yes, epistemology, the word comes from two Greek words, um, epist- episteme, or as we've been taught to pronounce it in seminary, sorry, episteme, right? Which means uh, knowledge, and logos, which means a discourse, uh, a word or a discourse. So epistemology is a discourse on knowing, and epistemology therefore answers the question: How do we know what we know? Right, right. And <clears throat> very simple. We use it every day. How do you know, that's a great question, by the way, to ask the other when they make a claim. Okay. How do you know that? Right. You don't have to go into defense right away. Interesting. Ask them the how question. Interesting. How do you know that? The, the, the way to, how do you know to stop at a stop sign? Give me some epistemological ingredients. How do you know to stop at a stop sign? And I ask students this. Well, uh, I was riding in the seat backseat with my father and mother as they drove. I saw that they came to the stop sign and stopped. I took a driver's ed. I got my permit, etc. That's epistemology. That answers the question, how do you know? And you gave me theological ingredients. Well, epistemology, in my epistemology in, in Christianity, with my worldview, my life, is that epistemology starts with the triune God. Mm, Think mm, about it. mm -hmm. Epistemology uses all kinds of logical inferences, uh, which we just did with the stop sign. Now, if epistemology takes part in creation, just as we do with the stop sign, it takes part in creation. Who is the source of creation? Yeah, triune God. So to do epistemology apart from the triune God is to commit a fundamental error. And I'll widen it. Music people, scientists, people who work as cooks at the Salvation Army, people like Andy Miller, people who drive a bus. Christians are to do that, not divorced from the triune God, because these are all things part of creation, and creation is contingent. It owes its existence to the triune God. Therefore, to sever life doing from the triune God is to commit a fundamental error 
at the outset. So you college students, your field is to be practiced within the life of the triune God. No partitioning, but within the life of the triune God. So when I talked about the, the Muslim and Christian same God issue, what did I do? I started with the triune God, right. homoousios, proper predicates. My articulation in the article, my articulation of answering the question takes place in the life of the triune God. There's my epistemological starting point. I love it. Thank you so much for taking a second to do that. I know we're running out of time here, but I'm so thankful for your witness and for the way that you know, you've developed your, your skills as, a, as a, a Christian philosopher and somebody who engages in these areas so regularly. Um, what, what are you working on now? What are you are, uh, academically or uh, intellectually? What are, what are some of your projects? Well, thank you. Uh, right now, I'm working with the publisher Whipf and Stock, W-I-P-F, Whipf and Stock, with a book, Philaity on the Trinity. Okay. Which I hope to complete by the Triune God's Grace by December 15th, and then however long the publication process takes after that. So it's a, lay, a book on for laity on the Trinity. And then, <clears throat> Triune God willing, I hope in the future to write my next book being uh, So You're Taking Religion 101. Uh-huh. Uh, and to help uh, see, uh, juniors and seniors and early college students to be able to deal with. Uh, non-believing Christian professors in the Religion 101 class. Interesting. That sounds great, and something that you're you're really equipped to do. There, you, I, I've I've learned. I wanted to highlight one thing. I quote you regularly on one thing, and it, it really has been helpful to me. And I just want to say it here. We don't have time to expand it all, but um, I heard a lecture you did on um, well, actually a long time ago when Rob Bell's book came out, and you just did kind of like. Did, to help me understand the intermediate state and the eternal state of humanity well by saying um, heaven level one and heaven level two and hell level one, hell level two. Like they, So heaven level one to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then the eternal state is that a new heavens and a new earth after Jesus' resurrection. I quote I, people, people who are around me in my preaching hear your name quite a bit, Steve. Uh, and I, I try to make sure they know it starts with, it starts with a T. It's a Greek... Greek basis there, so <laughs> so I appreciate you. You know, you've my been, name means pots and pans. Is that what it means? Okay, yeah, pots and pans. Yeah, and you also have a book on the nation of Islam, which we don't have time to talk about. We should get on again sometime, but I, I that might be something that's interesting to people here because like people like Louis Farrakhan end up getting in the news in mm-hmm. um, these days. So I encourage you all to take a look at his book on that subject. Steve, thank you so much for your time. You're a blessing to us. We pray that God will continue to use you. And we're excited. You're at the Salvation Army right now, and we trust that he'll continue leading you forward to the fight. It's been my pleasure, Andy, and thank you. Next week on the podcast, we have the international leaders of the Salvation Army, General Brian Peddle and Commissioner Rosalie Peddle. If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at Sal Army Tampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 